0: Good morning. This morning we take a slight detour away from our regular series of Luke to spend a little time contemplating and considering the resurrection. Now, for Christians, every Sunday, technically, is Resurrection Sunday. One of the reasons why worship was shifted from The Jewish context of Saturday and and the Sabbath to Sunday when the earliest Christians were also Jewish was because it was the first day of the week that the Lord came back from the dead. And there was this shift in focus of that is what our hope is to be found in. Our hope is to be found in the fact that our Messiah is not dead. Death did not have sway over him, as he has so many other false religious leaders and supposed deities before him. But he overthrew death itself. Thus demonstrating that everything that he said about himself and his kingdom was absolutely true. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can affirm that his message is unlike any other message that we've ever heard. And so, technically speaking, every Sunday is an Easter Sunday. But we take a little time in the historical context to celebrate together with the rest of Christendom the historical fact that Jesus actually came back from the dead. That there's a real context. That it's a real event that actually happened. That there were things going on and there were people around and there were political and social and cultural and environmental circumstances that were happening and people saw him. People had conversations with him. He had meals with people. As Paul says later in one of his letters, he said, and he appeared to more than 500 witnesses. This isn't some mythological story. This isn't some sort of Hyperbole. This isn't some sort of metaphor or simile. This isn't some sort of allegorical reinterpretation of spiritualized events to give it a context and a narrative. This is an event that actually took place. And that's why Christianity blocks out a certain two weeks. And yes, it's two weeks. Our Orthodox friends are celebrating Easter next Sunday. We'll go to lunch. We can talk about that. Um, I'm not getting into that in the sermon today. But over the course of these two weeks, all of Christendom celebrates the historical fact that Jesus came back from the dead. And there's a lot of ways that you can handle a Sunday like this. A lot of passages that you could go to. You could go to the classic passages in the Gospels that talk about his crucifixion and talk about his resurrection. You could uh, talk about the foreshadowing that we see in the Old Testament of Resurrection from the dead as uh, associated with uh, Moses being pulled out of the river and life coming from that or the people being delivered uh, Noah and his ark or the clothing that was put on Adam and Eve as they were cast out of the garden, yet God did not kill them in that moment. There's a lot of foreshadowing to the idea of resurrection in the Old Testament. We could have gone to any of those passages. But since every Sunday is technically a resurrection Sunday. It is the chief drive for why the Christian worships when they do, how they do, and why they do. I wanted to take a few minutes today and talk about the resurrection and worship. Because I feel that the resurrection, along with the Trinity, are two of the greatest evangelical Orthodox Christian truths that are most greatly neglected in the evangelical world today. You don't hear people talking about those two things very much at all. And if you quiz your typical evangelical in the pew, they have some faulty notions about both the resurrection and the Trinity. You know, what happens to you when you die? Well, you become an angel. No, you don't. Don't degrade yourself, the incarnation, and the fact that you're an image bearer by lessening yourself yourself To the arena of the angel. Don't do that. Why would you want to become less than what you are? God did not give angels his image bearing. And Christ when he came into the world incarnate. Did not take on the form of an angel. Why would you do that? We are made just a little less than God. Is what the scripture says. Why? Because we bear his image. Christ did not die for the angels. It says in the New Testament. But he died for us. Those who bear His image. So no, when you die, you don't become an angel. The resurrection is the true Christian hope. When we suffer in this age and at this time, when we go through great difficulties, when we get bad news about sickness, when we lose jobs, when we have wayward children, when we have emotional distress, when our world is in chaos, when we face famine and war and, and, and the threat of death and all of the things that we know happen regularly to human people in a fallen world, the great hope that we have is not so much that Christ has died. The great hope that we have is that Christ has died and is now risen and has promised that all those who are in him will be raised to be like him One day. It's the great Christian hope. And yet Christians, sadly today, seem to be some of the most despairing people that I know. Oh, you don't know how bad it is. Oh, I don't know how we're going to get by. You might not. Say, what kind of Easter message is this? You might not get by. Getting by is not the point. Being made like Him one day is the point. And I look past the sorrow of this broken, fallen world to the great hope that lies before me. A hope that is as certain as my standing here. Why? Because that historical day that Jesus came out of the tomb. And He made a promise in His resurrection that those who have faith and repentance will participate with Him in their own resurrection one day. And that overthrows any suffering that we face in this life. And so let's talk about the resurrection and worship. From these just few verses. 3, 4, and 5 from First Peter chapter 1. Blessed, worshipped, adored. Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Different word for blessed. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the Beatitudes. That word blessed means happy. This word blessed means worship or adored. Different word. Worship or adored. Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why should we worship God? It's a great question. It's one that we should ask regularly. Especially if we're going to have any meaningful engagement in worship in our lives. We should ask why we do it. And he gives us two great reasons here to worship God. First... Who, according to his great mercy, let's pause. Great mercy. The Tyndale Bible Dictionary gives a definition of mercy as this a divine quality by which God faithfully keeps his promises and maintains his covenant relationship with his chosen people despite their unworthiness. And unfaithfulness. I'll go back through that again. I know some of you note takers are very stressed right now. A divine quality. By which God faithfully keeps his promises. And maintains his covenant relationship. With his chosen people. Despite their unworthiness. And unfaithfulness. That's mercy. Or the real you know deep south way. I like to translate that. Getting what you don't deserve and it being for your benefit. I don't deserve relationship with God. I don't deserve resurrection. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve a seat at the feast that He has prepared. I don't deserve to be welcomed into the city of God. I don't deserve to be called a child of His. I don't deserve to be called a friend of God. I don't deserve to sit at His right hand and sit on thrones with Christ and to receive a crown of glory and to receive a crown of life. I don't deserve to be clothed in His righteousness. I do not deserve any of these things, yet I receive them and they're all to my benefit. That's mercy. What is it that I deserve? I deserve separation from Him. I deserve to be called His enemy. I deserve to remain an orphan. I deserve to remain outcast. I deserve for Him to turn His face away from me and not see me because my sin has separated uh, me from Him that He will not make notice of me. I deserve to receive the full brunt and fury of His wrath because I am a cosmic rebel. I have committed cosmic treason. This is what I deserve. I deserve to be separated from the life that is found in God. I deserve for the image that is still left in me of him to be completely erased and to be cast out away from him. And yet, because of Jesus Christ, I now receive all of the benefits of being the son of God, though I am not. That's called mercy. That's called mercy. Friends, if we never got past that first half of the verse, we have plenty of reasons to worship God blessed, adored, worshipped, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of His great mercy. But His great mercy is not just kind of sitting out there on a shelf, bobblehead mercy. It does something. And God does something with it. He demonstrates An incredible power behind His mercy. And so the second thing that we worship God for is His great power. Notice what it says right after this. It says, according to His great mercy, what has caused us... That's the idea of power. He has created this situation. He has done only what He can do. He has caused us... Now that's another conversation for another day, but he didn't hope for us to. He didn't try for us to. He didn't strive for us to. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For what purpose? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. This is by his power. He has caused mercy not only to exist, but to be applied directly to us by transforming us from the inside out. I was born in Adam. I was a rebel. I was against the things of God. I was sinful. I was at enmity with God. And we could go through all of the rest of the list that the scripture says about what my condition was before a holy God. And left to myself, there was nothing that I could do to make myself right with God. But God, having so great a mercy, sends Christ into the world to die upon a cross and to be raised from the dead that I might be caused to be born again, to become something that I am not. In other words, God should be worshipped because he has the power to give us life. I was dead. This is what the scripture says. I was dead in my trespasses and my sins. Dead. Now, Philip, break it down for me. What does that Greek word mean? It's really sophisticated. That Greek word means dead. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I did not have spiritual life. Every metaphor that the Scripture uses points us to the fact of our helplessness. I was sick. I was blind. I was deaf. I was leprous. I was mute. I was lame. I was dead. None of these things are conditions, especially at the time when the New Testament was written, that I could have done anything in my own power to correct But God, being rich in mercy, has caused us, I couldn't do it for myself, He did it for me. He's caused us to be born again. He gave me sight. He gave me hearing. He loosed my tongue. He cleaned me of my leprosy. He gave strength to my legs. He gave life to my deadness. This is what He's done. Where there was no life, he gave life to me through Jesus Christ. And how did he secure this? How did God demonstrate that this was real? How did God show that he was capable of giving life to me that was lifeless? He did so by raising his own son from the dead. How can I, sinner that I am, be sure that God really will do these things for me? How can I be certain that my sin is not greater than His grace? How can I not be sure that my sin has overthrown His throne, rather than His throne overthrowing the throne of the sin that I I reside in? How can I be certain that the city of God will remain and the city of man will be cast out? How can I know that these things are true? Behold the Lamb of God who is risen from the dead. It's not speculative. It's not philosophical. It's not, I wonder. It's not, mm, I maybe hope so. It's, look, there he is. Feel the wounds in his hand. See the wound in his side. Doubting Thomas said the same thing I will not believe until I see and touch the marks myself. And you know what he did? He saw and touched the marks himself. Why? Because he really came back from the dead. We can speculate about a lot of things in Christianity. We can agree to disagree on a great many doctrinal points. But the foundational principle of the entire Christian religion is that Jesus Christ, the God-man, died and three days later rose from the dead. And everywhere in the scripture where it speaks about his death, it implies his resurrection because he is not dead any longer. But God has demonstrated his love for us in this, that that while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. And by implication, if you read the rest of the book of Romans, Paul's driving to the point of him being raised from the dead. He starts there in, in, in Romans chapter one. This great power of resurrection. And it permeates through the entire letter that he writes. That we can have hope because Jesus Christ is not dead anymore. He lives. And so by God's great power, he has raised his own son from the dead. And so he shows that he can give us life because he is able to give life to his own son. And this gives us hope both for now and in the future. And so we see then that God's gifts are to be acknowledged. If we were to worship God rightly, we worship him through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we rightly acknowledge God's gifts to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What what gifts are these? Well, we have our past deliverance. I've been born again. I'm not perpetually born again and again and again and again. I was born again. There's a point at my justification. There's a point where I'm transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved son. There's a point where I cease being an orphan child of Adam and I become an adopted child of the Most High God through the work of Jesus Christ. He's caused us to be born again. This is my past deliverance. Some of the old theologians say that this is the aspect of salvation where I was saved. Past tense. I have been delivered from by being made new and having been given life. But we also see our present joy. Not only have we been born again, but look at what it says. It says that he has caused us, verse 3, to be born again to what? To a life of empty meandering and mindless wandering and despair and hopelessness. This is what a lot of Christians seem to live their Christian lives for. But this is not it. Look at what it says. It says that I've been born again, we've been born again, caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not only is God to be worshipped for his past deliverance, but he's also to be worshipped for the present joy that he supplies us. We have a living hope. Why do we have a living hope? Look at what it says. There's exact reasoning why we have a living hope. Why can I, in the midst of all the suffering that I face right now, all the difficulties that I face, the brokenness and fallenness of the world, the the continued sin that abides in me and the sin that lives in those around me and just the overall cosmic turmoil that exists because this world has not been rightly made new yet that will happen one day in future glory. How can I have hope and joy and peace in the midst of such trials and turmoil and suffering? Why? Because He's caused me to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And friends, I contend this morning that most modern day evangelical Christians suffer sluggishly through their day by day lives because they focus too much on a dead Jesus and not enough on a living one. Our Jesus is still hanging on the cross rather than having erupted out of the grave. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's a play on words Peter's using here and it's a beautiful one. A living hope through the resurrection. Why? Because our Savior's not dead. My hope is alive because my Savior is alive. And so when you're Facing that problem, that trial, that difficulty, that surgery, that wayward kid, that downturn in your job, the political wranglings, the, all the things that happen in this world and, and it could create such great distress and great turmoil and great pain and great sorrow. You look past the brokenness of our current circumstances and you look to the greater reality, not the fantasy, the greater reality. And that is that Jesus Christ is risen, reigning on his throne. And that I'm seated there with him already. And then, third, these gifts of God that we acknowledge so that we might worship him rightly. Not only this past deliverance of being born again, not only this present joy of of the living hope that we have, but also the future home that is ours. Look what it says. As you move into verse 4, it says, this resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And we're protected... By the power of God. Remember, that's part of the reason why we worship him is his power. Friends, this inheritance that we have one day, I wish I could describe it to you. John attempts to explain what he saw in his revelation. Through the language that it was accessible to him as a human being. We sadly have taken his poetic, apocalyptic language and try to make it very literal. Like actual, literal streets of gold. You know what? That'd be cool if that's what happens. Not the best construction design, because if it's if it's really pure gold, the streets are going to cave in all the time because it's really anyway. That's Talk to your jeweler friends about that. But John said, look, I want to try to describe the majesty of what I saw. This new heaven and this new earth. This resurrected Christ. People being conformed to his image. There being no sin and no death and no sadness and no suffering and no pain. Jesus truly having real victory over everything that he overthrew on the cross. I want to try to describe this to you. And he used the best language that he could. And it was incredible. Friends, there is an inheritance. For us one day. And you know what an inheritance is? This is the beauty of it. I love I love talking about inheritance. You know what an inheritance is? An inheritance is somebody did really, really well. Because of all the work that they did. And then they died. And gave it away for free. To some yay who didn't do anything to deserve it. That's what an inheritance is. I don't long for this day. I pray it's way far off from now. But if my dad dies. He's already told me that I'm the executor of the estate. He's already got everything written up. What goes to me and what goes to my brother and all that kind of stuff. He's got it all laid out and he's done pretty well. I didn't work for any of that. I don't deserve any of the benefits of his work. And yet. One day I will receive it. As if it had always been mine. Even though I didn't work one day for it. The reason the scripture uses our future hope. With the language of inheritance. Is because that's the gospel. Jesus did all the work. And then he died. And he said you know what. I'm going to give it to you as if it's always been yours. That's what he's going to do. You're going to be clothed in righteousness. You're going to be seated on a throne. You're going to receive a crown of glory. You're going to be called children of the Most High God, even though you were born rebels. But it's going to be like it's always been that way. You're going to get it as if it's yours. As if you've earned it. As if you deserve it. As if it should have always been that way. Even though it should have been the exact opposite Friends, this is the hope that we have of the future. We have an inheritance secured by the work of Jesus. And friends, he's never failed in anything that he's ever done. And what is it that he has to offer us? Well, he says that everything that is his will be ours. This is his high priestly prayer in John 17. Love them with the same love with which you love me. Let everything that is mine be theirs. What belongs to Jesus? Super easy pop quiz this morning, by the way. Everything. 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 Thank you. Yes. Everything. So let's look then at God's promises affirmed. At God's promises affirmed. I want you to notice... The description of this inheritance that we receive. Notice how Peter talks about this. Thank you, sir. Notice how Peter talks about this. In verse 5, he talks about how this inheritance is protected by the power of God. Through faith for a salvation to be revealed at the last time. So it's coming. It's already ours, but we don't have it yet. The already not yet. And in verse 4, right before he tells us that, he says to us that this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, and is reserved in heaven. First, let's talk about the duration of this inheritance. You know, the problem with with earthly inheritances is, is that they can run out you hear these horror stories about people and I often wonder about them. You know, some mega conglomerate multi-bazillionaire guy dies and he leaves his couple of kids. Like, you get half, you get the other half. And then after a couple of years, you hear one of the kids is completely broke. And you go, how did that happen? Like, he would have had to spend like a million dollars a day to run out of money that fast. And apparently he did. Earthly inheritances can end. They can run out. They can be taken away. Things can be lost. But to blockade our minds from thinking that way, notice what the scripture says. It says that the duration of this inheritance is imperishable. It means that it's without end is what that word means. It has no ending. Jesus Christ himself. Is what he is giving to us. We're being conformed to his image. We're being seated on his throne. We're being clothed in his righteousness. We're being crowned with his glory. We're being loved with the same love with which the Father loves him. We are receiving the fullness of being one with Christ. That is of infinite value, it never ends. So long as the glory of Christ resides, so too will our glory in Christ reside. It is imperishable. Then second, Peter says that it's worth a great deal. It's a very worthy inheritance. That word for undefiled means without moral fault. It means that there's nothing wrong with it. This thing that we receive from Christ. is so pure that we cannot fathom it. We live even as redeemed people with sin still having sway. We still live in a fallen and broken world. We cannot comprehend a completely morally pure act. We can't. I wish I could, but I can't. I can't. And yet, this is what Jesus Christ is going to give to us. An everlasting eternity of absolute moral purity with no defect whatsoever. We will live together in a world that has no flaws at all. And never will. No one will ever be selfish. No one will ever be rude. No one will ever be self-serving. There will be no backbiting, no fighting, no war, no striving, no complaining, no nagging. No forgetfulness and empty mindedness. No lack of love, no presence of prejudice or hate. There will just be the moral purity of the Lamb of God. Residing and abiding in every one of his people in a world, a cosmic order itself that has no brokenness to it at all. And then he talks to us about the quality of this inheritance. It says here in this text that it's unfading. That it will not fade away. The language there means that it does not diminish in loveliness. It does not diminish in loveliness. There's an entire science. In antiquities called restoration. People learn to do it with painting, with sculptures, with old books. Because over time, even the most beautiful things start to fade away. They start to lose their loveliness. They start to lose their luster. And if you want it to maintain its loveliness of its original form, you have to have an expert in that field able to go in and create a restoration for that thing that causes it to still look the way that it looked to... The trained and untrained eye as if it had never been tampered with. Or else it will start to just fade completely away. There is no need for restoration projects and the inheritance that Jesus Christ gives to us. It won't be that at the end of 10,000 or so years we start to look around and go, this place is getting kind of drab. You know, Philip really used to be spot on with this moral purity stuff, but now he's, I don't know. I mean, he seems to be struggling. There will be no need for restoration. There will be no diminishing in loveliness. In fact, the scripture teaches us, if we follow it along closely enough, that every day, however that's even measured there, that goes by, we'll fall all the more in love with The world and the Christ and the people that we are with and around. That it will become more and more lovely as the eons and the ages progress. Then he says that this inheritance is intentional. It's reserved, is what it says. It's reserved, it's set aside for a purpose. We get this idea of reservation. Really big, special event is about to happen in your life. Maybe it's a big birthday. Maybe it's an anniversary. Whatever it might be. And you make a phone call to that special place. Say, hey. I need a table for X number of people. This day and this time. So that when we get there, we don't have to wait around We can just take our seats. You've made a reservation. It's been set aside for a purpose. Friends, this is the greatest reservation that has ever been made. If you have repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a seat at the banquet table reserved for you that you might participate in the glory of Jesus Christ because of the work that He has done for you and the inheritance that He has supplied for you. You will not have to wait in the lobby hoping that a seat becomes available. There's already a place marked out. And it's marked out by the very blood of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead. You have a seat because he gave you a seat. And it's guaranteed. Notice the language that it uses in this text. It says that it's protected by the power of God, the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. It's protected our inheritance. That means it's preserved from injury or harm. Nothing is going to happen to it. You say, but Philip, I struggle and I sin and I have problems and I fall and I falter. And I feel like my whole Christian life, I'm crawling in the mud from the city of God. From the city of man to the city of God. I feel like I'm I'm just crawling on my hands and knees, on my face, through a minefield. And I feel like I make little to no progress in my pursuit of holiness. Thanks be to God. That the inheritance for us is not about our best effort and our best striving and how diligently we're able to make progress but rather the inheritance that's been secured for us is because His sacrifice and His work and His resurrection was great great enough to overcome any obstacle that we might face in our own life from here to there. Friends, it is not about my striving but it's about His working for me because He has guaranteed the inheritance. I have not. And while it's true of an earthly inheritance that the father might look at a child and say, you know what? I find you so loathsome. I'm cutting you out. Friend, that is not how our God is. If he has called us his children, then we are his children. Even if we're the child that sloughs it through the mud in slow motion every day. When he sees us from a distance, it's the parable of the prodigal son. He runs to us. He doesn't wait for us to run to him. Because, friends, we can't run to him. It's not within our spiritual power to do so. But he comes to us. He carries us. He lifts us up. He bears the burden for us. He guarantees our place. Friend, don't leave this place today thinking that you can do anything to guarantee your own place. That was the great error of the Pharisees. Friends, the same power that raised Christ is the same power that affirms the promise and inheritance to all of God's people. So, Philip, I just don't know how certain I can be about the future hope that I have in Christ. How certain are you of the resurrection? The reason so many of us falter in our faith. We have so many doubts. We spend far too much time contemplating the greatness of our own sin rather than the greatness of the power of God to raise his son from the dead. And I've mentioned this many a times from this pulpit. And I'll say it many more times over the years that God allows me to serve here. I am by nature highly skeptical and very cynical. That's what I am. If ever there was going to be someone to doubt the, the Christian faith, it would certainly be me. And I did for many years. But do you know what has settled it for me? from the human perspective obviously God's doing a great work behind the scenes through his spirit in me but from a human perspective there's no getting around the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead you have to turn a very aggressive blind eye to the fact that Jesus did not raise did not come back from the dead you have to do a lot of historical gymnastics to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And friends, if he is raised, it's a game changer. It's a game changer. I would encourage you, friend, if you struggle, to do what has helped me in all the years of my struggle. Stop looking at your own sin. Stop looking at your own circumstances. Stop looking at your own mental capabilities. Stop looking at the difficulties that you find when you read through the text and trying to get it all to fit together. And instead, look at the fact that Christ Jesus has been risen from the dead and start there and work your way out. Because when everything else came to cave in on you, Every time you approach that tomb, it's going to be the same. Empty. Empty. Friends, what a worthy reason to praise God. For the resurrection of his son. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the resurrection Of Jesus Christ. Thank you that your apostle Paul tells us. That if Christ be not raised. We are still in our sins and we have no hope. Hope but father thank you. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. It's scripturally true for your word declares it. It's historically true for it has happened and it has witnesses to attest to it. It is experientially true for we see the power of the life of Christ resonating in those who have been touched by him by grace through faith. Every aspect of human existence screams out that Jesus Christ is alive. And we thank you for it. Father, let our worship be much more vibrant as we focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let us be reminded that every Sunday is an Easter Sunday. Every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is a celebration that the tomb is empty. Every corporate gathering is a gathering together to affirm that we are participating in the new life of Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us when our circumstances and our situations and our struggles overwhelm and cloud our vision of an exalted, resurrected Christ. Father, when our lives are low and times are hard and the providence that you place on us seems to be a frowning one, let us, by grace, through faith, lift our eyes past that to the risen Christ and say, yes, though I weep, yet joy will come in the morning. Because my Savior was dead. And now he lives again. And he has promised that one day. I will share his life with him forever. Come quickly Lord Jesus. And we thank you for it. Amen. I invite-